Hey, hey, everyone, my guest today turned down Oprah the first time she called. True story. But she did Tony on the mic on the first request. She is Pam Smith and is fascinating. She had a genealogy friend years ago, and they were working together for a few years researching their family history. They discovered that one of her friend's people owned, as in slavery, her people. Man, how would you react? She tells us about the emotional whirlwind and how it all reconciled. Spoiler alert, after some tense moments and a little bit of friction, they're still good friends 30 years later. She's a longtime civil rights advocate who has worked on campaigns with Jesse Jackson, Barack Obama, and then she met Stokely Carmichael once by accident. She lived in Africa for a few years and lived in a monastery. Not quite like Sister Act or Sound of Music, I found out. She's lived in the DMV, Chicago, Portland, Oregon, spreading seeds of hope and racial reconciliation every step of the way. Way too many cool stories for one podcast, so we definitely have to have her back. So sit down, strap in, turn on and turn up this equality-seeking episode of Tony on the Mic. Our story begins as these stories often do. But it starts, I am not amused by pain. I want to ball you up like a messed up piece of paper and throw you out of my life. Can you believe that? And can you be that? A piece of garbage like your ancestors might have treated mine. I mean, I'm sure that all of you have the most amazing stories filled with drama and romance and, and meaning. <laughs> so at this monastery, was was there a lot of singing? Did you have someone um, named Maria? Was there, how did, how did you solve the problem of Maria? And um, from, yeah. God. The mo- I can't even think of the sound of music. Oh, oh, I see. I sound was trying to tie that. To- you know what? Right, forget right, I asked right. that. This whole segment is going to be cut. Story, story. Let's hear another story. Story, story. That one was just sad. For me, it wasn't until they said, okay, Pam, you'll take the seat closest to Oprah. And I went, <laughs> Winfrey? <laughs> <laughs> But dear God, please don't make me suffer a friendship. Why must any part of this feel good? I have to say that's the most amazing story I ever heard. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you listen to this fine podcast product. My name is Tony Lawrence, and this is Tony on the Mic. Today, I have a fascinating guest who I ran into by coincidence, who she has a big coincidence to tell us about. And I'm hoping this is the second step in a budding friendship. So Pam Smith is my guest. Say hello, Pam. Hello, Tony. Thank you so much for having me, and hello to everyone listening. Yeah, this is uh, this is really exciting. We met we met at a wedding. It was my aunt and your friend. Yeah, and it was uh, it was and it was just coincidence. And then as we move towards this podcast, because listeners know I hit everybody up that I think is interesting to be on the podcast. Then just talking and reading and exchanging emails, it turned into we we have some very similar interests. We have some things in common, and she has some fascinating stuff. So we're gonna we're gonna jump right in. Pam Smith. Now I'm going to ask you a question. You said you're from Chicago. <laughs> but you're a Chicagoan, so yes. you're going to know the real answer. Right. right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Evanston. Evanston. Okay. <laughs> Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Like you say the book takes place in Chicago, but Ivy lives in Schaumburg. Schaumburg, Diane? Schaumburg's not Chicago. It's in the Chicago metropolitan. Oh my God! What's next? Evanston, Chicago? Morton Grove, Chicago? Naperville, Chicago? That's what you sound like. Right, exactly. But you know, we hung out in Chicago and that was like our, you know, 
Yeah. That's where we had all our fun when we were growing up. Not all of it, but you know, we hung out in Chicago. Chicago's yeah. a lot of fun. No, it's, I saw Evanston Township High School and I'm thinking, mm-hmm. wait a minute. No. <laughs> <laughs> when people aren't from Chicago, you can get away with that. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, I, I've been doing it my whole life. My whole life. Somebody says, oh, I'm from Chicago. I'm like, oh, what park? And this is like, you know, Elk Grove or Evanston right. or whatever. And I go, uh, it's not really Chicago. Not, not quite Chicago. And my but... kids tease me because if somebody asks me where I'm from, I'll say San Diego. And they'll go, are you from San Diego? And I'm like, well, I'm from La Mesa, but nobody knows where La Mesa is. So I say San Diego and they go, uh-huh. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think Chicagoans are particularly, I think it's a thing with Chicago people more than, than a lot of people. Like, I don't think anybody in San Diego cares that I say I'm from San Diego, even though I'm in La Mesa, but mm-hmm. I tell you what, you say you're from Chicago and you're from Evanston. I'm going to, I'm going to call you on it. I'm going <laughs> to. <laughs> right. I think it does depend on what your experience has been. Cause my father, my parents were separated. My father lived in Chicago. So, you know, I spent time in Chicago and um, a lot of my work has been in Chicago, really all of my work in my adult life before I moved out of the area was in Chicago, not in Evanston. And where are you now? I'm in Falls Church, Virginia, 15 minutes outside of D.C. Okay. What right there, a job, a passion? What what took you there? Well, um, believe it or not, I just left. Um, I just finished a three-year residency at a historic monastery. Oh, my goodness. In Richmond, <laughs> in Richmond Virginia. Okay, hang um, on, because I'm, I'm making a note to revisit that. So yes, go on, but we're going to come back. Yes, yeah, so that's... Um, And so when I left that, I wanted to stay in the area. I lived here um, for a bit when I was working on a political campaign in the 80s and loved the D.C. area and just decided to stay here for a while. Nice. (laughs) So you're in high school and I saw some cool stuff. You said you're a budding activist. Um, You and I are close to the same age. So if you don't mind me asking, what year did you graduate in high school? 76. Okay. What is a what is a budding activist look like in 76? Uh, (laughs) The world was on fire in the late 60s and mid 70s, you know, yeah. especially Chicago. You were in Evanston. Mm-hmm. What did that look yeah. like? No, you're right. Um, for me, what it looked like and for a lot of us at Evanston Township, which purports to be the first integrated school district in the country. Is that right? Um, yeah. So, um, you know, we it was the Black Power Movement. Yeah. You know, so we were. You know, we were believing in our power and I had teachers in junior high school, black teacher, drama teacher who told us that, you know, go out there and spread your wings and be proud of who you are. And so we grew up in all that and we um, protested at the basketball games on Friday night. We protested the singing of the uh, national anthem. In so 70, we didn't raise the, the ruckus or anything, right. but we just sat down and kind of as a group collectively wow. protested. I'm going to try and show you a picture. I'm not good at this at all. Okay. Um, and I'm going to move this guy over to there. Can you see that? <laughs> now, that's how we rock an afro back in the day. <laughs> yeah, I had one too. Did you? I was, I was wondering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> I don't know if I have any pictures of mine, but that is a great picture. That's and that's what that's what all of us in a group photo look like. Nice. Nice. And what you time. can't see is the pick with the fist. Yeah. You know, <laughs> in, the, in the back. That's what everybody in, had. In that picture. But we all had them. 
let's see, 76. So 68 was the big convention in Chicago with, with the craziness. And then 76, 76 is about when we moved. Um, my dad ran for Alderman. So you were yeah. right in the midst of the daily machine and, oh, yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, that was, yeah. Oh, yeah. and it's funny because back then people stood for things, not necessarily a party or a, you know, whatever, because Mayor Daly was a Democrat and ooh, we hated him. <laughs> right. You know, it's weird how you can just stand for something and not necessarily, a, you know, a party. I, I think that, that we've lost that as a nation that we can't say this person who represents this party is bad because we want to support that party. And, and that's that's sad to me. I think we need to be hold everyone accountable. To a lot of different standards and see that everybody can help everybody you know the party line thing I, I think is important in certain ways but i know you know i'm a genealogist so i love to do genealogy and i've gone down a lot of back roads in missouri and kentucky um Ooh. states that really don't share my political <laughs> kind of leanings you know looking for my people and talking right. to people about you know do you know and you know it's i have found some people in some ways um, that are, I don't know, there's a window that, that that if you can get through, like I'll sit at a kitchen table and I'll talk about my perspective on some of these things and theirs will be very different. But it's at a point they'll say, you know, I guess I see your point. I never really looked at it that way. Right. So you're in high school with an Afro doing uh, oral <laughs> interpretation and poetry? Yes, did Nikki write, Giovanni. Did she was. I just heard her on the radio today. Nikki Giovanni was a um, real influencer of mine. I loved her, and I did all her poetry. You know, knew all her stuff by heart, and did did stuff. You know, did, at all kinds of events, and yeah. Did you wear a beret at any point? No, <laughs> <laughs> no beret. Interesting. In college, you did more oral interpretation, uh, more poetry, and then bid whist became <laughs> important enough to put on the background sheet yes exactly <laughs> we played a lot of bid whist and it got that was my way of saying everything wasn't all you know activism and yeah, academics yeah, yeah. Right. um no our parents played bid whist and so we we had a lot of fun um, I, I was a, i was a cribbage player mostly but we we throw some spades or bid whist from oh. you know time to time uh -huh. now spades or bid whist we I played more spades, but we played right. both. I played more spades. Yeah. <laughs> and just like Evanston to Chicago, God, no, fair, fair, a hundred percent fair. And yep, yep. But just so you know, I do know the difference, and I do know how to play them both. Okay, we did, we did play more spades. Okay. Uh, and where did you go to college? I didn't see that. Bradley University. Well, I went for a year to Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. Okay. And then. Um, and then to Bradley University. Bradley. I was interested because I always thought that I chose Luther. You know how you go through and you pick your colleges. Right. And I lived in Africa for two years and I was in Africa and I ran into, believe it or not, Stokely Carmichael. Get out. And now we were at the same reception for, you know, some 
kind of something. Wow. And I was talking that it was such an amazing experience because I just really And was was he Stokely Carmichael when you saw he him? He was Stokely Carmichael. Or was Carmichael. he not yet Sto was he a budding Stokely Carmichael? He was he was Stokely. Okay. I mean he had on African garb and everything, but you know, I just remember him asking me and and, and somehow I must have implied that I chose Luther and he said, You didn't choose Luther. And so I was like, what? I thought I, you know, I, I did. Right. I tried. And he said, um, and he said, no. And he said in um, 1976, if you lived in Chicago, there were only two places, two or three colleges that you could go to that would wow. accept blacks. And he said, and Luther was one of them. And he said, the other one was Northern. And my sister went to Northern, you know? <laughs> so it's like how you never know the context that yes. you're yeah. Well, and especially when you're a teenager, especially when you're high school graduation, college, early college years, you don't see much past what's actually happening in front of your face and you don't right. process with perspective. That's and, you, you know, true. and you and you just see that. And we learn later how stupid we were and how gullible, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Muhammad Ali once said that if you're the same person at 50 that you were at 20, then you wasted 30 years. Right. <laughs> and then, yeah. And I always I always say that if you don't look back at your teens when you hit your forties and beyond and with a little bit of cringe <laughs> than you wasted yeah. your teenage years. Cause right, right, you right. should, you should be out there making mistakes. I mean, that's what we do yeah. and we learn and we grow and hopefully don't hurt anybody. Yeah. So uh, the next part is fascinating. And I'm, I'd be shocked if you and my dad didn't cross paths. Um, Jesse Jackson's 88 presidential bid. You worked on that campaign. Yeah, I did. My oh. well, I started my father when I was a little girl. My father took me to Operation Push. Okay. Yep. Oh, you yeah. know Operation Push. Yes, I do. <laughs> and that was in the days where you had to get there early. You couldn't even get a seat at Push. You know, it was so um it was so popular and meaningful to people. Yeah. yeah so I, I was I believed in Reverend Jackson's message from a very young person and nice. then worked locally on his campaign when I was living in Portland, Oregon in 1984 oh. and then on in 1988. Um, OK, so you probably didn't cross paths because my dad was up and out of Chicago and different places working on the campaign. Oh, okay. I think I sent you the picture, the, you the picture from Selma, where they were, where he and Jesse Jackson were hugging. Yes. And he knew, yes. I mean, he, he knew all of us and knew all of our names and everything, which is always kind of That's crazy. incredible. You sent a picture of your dad with Dr. King, too. Yeah. 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 Those are uh, very proud memories, obviously. Yeah. You know, obviously, the stick out. Um, then you worked on Obama's Senate campaign. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. were you were you in Oregon? No, I was in Chicago. Okay. Now, were yeah. you in Chicago? Um, that was Chicago. Chicago? <laughs> I was in Chicago. The office okay. was in Chicago. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I was I was um, on staff in both those campaigns, um, oh. press secretary and communications right. director. So um, and I was glad that in uh, 1984, I did Jackson's campaign locally. And then I wanted to work for him in 1988. And so when he came to Oregon in 1984, I was so green. And I was like, I really want to work on your campaign in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and of course, he looked at me like, right. you know. And um, so I just took a flight. I just, I couldn't get it out of my head. I just took a flight. I flew to D.C. And, you know, I said, oh, you know, I'm here to see so-and-so. I had researched some people on the campaign. Um, and they said, you can't see those people. Yeah, right. <laughs> Who are you? Right. Like you have on a pink suit and you're from Portland, Oregon. Like, right. no. 
Right. That's <laughs> and I just kind of sat there until I met some people and, and I ended up volunteering for a couple of days and then um, oh. I got the job. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, I think one of the most powerful Jesse Jackson memories of my childhood was I am somebody. And trying to explain what that meant to people, you know, it's, it's akin to like Black Lives Matter, all lives matter, you know, and, and right. yes, of course, all lives matter. Nobody's saying right. they don't. But the Black right. Lives Matter was meant to validate a situation that was happening right now and was, was right. growing. And it was I am somebody. Yes. And um, that was right. out. It was probably four or five years after. It's funny because if you can see me, I'm very light skinned, mixed. And I remember J uh, James Brown. Say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. Say it loud. And yes. so, of course, everybody sang that. I mean, that's, you know, we didn't, I was the whitest person in the neighborhood. And so it, a guy says, hey, and he came up with this little rap and he's like, James Brown's about to be on TV downtown. You can come around and, you know, just doing this kind of silly thing. And everybody come on and get down. Tony, you can come too. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Same with I am somebody is that it it just reinforced that you had worth, that you had yes. that, that your life, your experience, your soul, your being, your contributions were worth something. Exactly. And it wasn't reserved for black people per se, but white people already knew they had worth. Yes. <laughs> and they, they already lived as if they had the worth. And black people have been told since slavery since you know the days that you are less than it does and, not have exactly. and it continued with redlining and the lack of you know no right. voting and i mean there were mm -hmm. lots of pro things that went on and to say i am somebody and to have him repeat it this repeat yes. say, i am i am I think the somebody. repetition yeah. was huge and it was it was and, amazing. and jackson was continuing what had been done before remember the movements with the signs i am a man yeah yes you know and ain't yeah. i a woman and everything all along the way we've had to assert our personhood yeah yeah, yeah. and uh so when he ran for president it mm -hmm. was such a meaningful step and enclave into the situation that it was it was fascinating and for you to be a part of that that had to be amazing it it, it was amazing i mean there was a press corps that traveled with jackson that you know was including camera people and everything almost a hundred strong you know, we'd have our own campaign planes, Wow! you know, with all the reporters, you know, that traveled with us and, um, and so awesome. many good people, Frank Watkins, who just recently passed and Delmarie Cobb and just Jackson's campaign really gave a generation of us, introduced us in a massive kind of way to the polit to political campaign workings. Yeah. So eternally grateful for all that. Yeah, that's awesome. And then you worked on Obama's Senate campaign. What it was that? What yeah. year was that? That Remember? was two thousand four or five. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm, yeah. And how how was that? 
that was it was great because I was glad. I mean, I I knew that I knew um, Obama's name um, because he was a state senator. I didn't. He wasn't in my district, so I hadn't followed him closely. Right. And I kind of just got a call from someone one day, so I was kind of like, <laughs> "This is interesting." Right. But uh, this was before he was Obama, Obama. right? Yes. <laughs> so this is the period that is considered the rise. You yeah. know, it's like when he was. Um, so I'm glad that I got to know him at that point and got to, you know, kind of be around as he campaigned. And now, were you obviously happy when he when he became president? Um, oh my gosh! Yes. What, now, when everybody else got on the bandwagon, did you treat them like you know how you have a band who you kind of really like, and then all of a sudden they got popular, and you go, "I, I liked him before everybody else liked this band." Right. You like, <laughs> like I liked Obama before you guys even knew who he was. <laughs> it was funny. My, I used to take my friends to different campaign events and stuff, so a lot of my circle felt like they knew him, you know, a yeah. bit. Yeah, you know, just from being around him when he won, but it was just. Especially to be in Chicago that night. I just oh, remember I, being I on the were you out? It was I remember being along Lake Shore. I wasn't and in Chicago in eighty eight. Yeah. Oh, you weren't. Okay. But they were just people out on the lake and out by Lakeshore Drive and everybody was it, it was just and remember that picture of Reverend Jackson with the tear yep. running down his yep. eyes, you know. Yep. So, you know, kind of that I was my dad. My dad was was unabashedly crying, you know, and, and people don't understand that. And it doesn't mean that he thought that he was the Messiah or the second coming of Christ mm -hmm. or anything like that. It just signaled to him that there were possibilities now that weren't there before that, yes. you know, once you, once you break a glass ceiling, that's important. You know, we, we're like in the Super Bowl, I don't know if you follow sports, we just had two African-American quarterbacks in the last Super Bowl, And everybody's like, What's the big deal? Why are you trying to make race? Blah, blah, blah. Why is this a race thing? Because it's never happened. Yeah. Okay. When these things right. are the first time they've ever happened, it's mm -hmm. a big deal. Mm -hmm. And just acknowledge yeah. it. It doesn't, it mm -hmm. doesn't mean those two quarterbacks are the best quarterbacks who've ever played the game. It doesn't mean anything mm -hmm. like that. It just means now there's been a it happened. Know, right. It happened. And and, and same it, with, it, with it, Jesse not that it hasn't been tried before because Shirley Chisholm ran Chisholm, for, yeah. you know, like, yeah. you know, it's and I feel this, I feel like that's what's going to happen with reparation. It may not happen in my lifetime, but I think that people have been fighting for reparation since forever. And at one point, at some point, we're going to get it. Hmm. You have hope that I do not have. Mm -hmm. I, and only, I, I have hope. I think that I think that there is a consensus, reasonable consensus, collective will for it to happen. But I think there's, I think the challenge is, I'm going to give you a thousand dollars, a thousand dollars. I'm going to give you a million dollars, a million dollars. I'm going to, you know, that the amount versus the, you know, the whole process. I think that's where people get, get, I think that's where the, where I get by. I don't know what, I don't know what the number is. I don't know what the process is. I don't know, you know, how it works. I would love to see some formula happen for, for, if nothing else, just for healing, for the whole nation to heal, for it to be over. Yeah. And and that to be no longer discussion. And the longer we get away from it, the people say, well, how come they're complaining now? You know, and and that's why I'm I'm skeptical. It's just the time that has passed, you know, and 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 the formula. How do you how do you make that work? Yeah, the time doesn't phase me at all. I just think we have to keep pushing. 
Um, there, there are cases that are considered all the time where people have found legal ways around things. Yeah. And I remember a long, long time ago, Charles Ogletree, who's like a famous reparations attorney, just a Harvard educated, amazing attorney right. who has been working on reparations for years. And what he has said when there are little smaller local acts of reparations yeah. in various forms, that helps them in court because it builds the case. It builds and builds and builds. And I'm part of an organization called Coming to the Table. Have you heard about it? I have not. Okay. Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> um, and that's actually how I met Anne. Uh, well, not how I met Anne, but she's in the organization too. So um, but Coming to the Table originally started as descendants of enslaved people and um, enslavers working together to address the legacy of enslavement in this country. Now it's kind of more generally people who are interested in talking about race relations, race relations and working on race relations. But um, coming to the table, there are lots of examples where, so for example, I know of um, two women the white descendant, um, her family has some wealth. The black descendant, um, the family does not. As we know, black people do not have the generational wealth uh, because we didn't have things passed down. Um, but she asked um, um, the other woman, what could our family do to make amends, to begin to, we know we can't ever make up for it, but right, right. is there something we can do? So um, the other person said, let me go back to my family and discuss it. And, you know, we'll let you know. So they came back and said, well, you know, we don't have much money in our family. We want to make sure that all the young people can go to college. So if there's anything you can do to help with college, you know, that would be something that we would appreciate. And so um, Phoebe's family established a trust fund for the um, descendants of people that her family had enslaved. And that, and they're really good friends and the trust fund is working and there are lots of examples like that happening around the country. That's good. Uh, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And okay. I'm not prepared to talk about that. And yeah. I, I, I don't want to fire myself, but I, I, you know, again, we can, we can ha do this again sometime. And we can target some things. It'll be fun. Okay. And, and and I think that's a I think that's a marvelous, marvelous thing to do. And it, it's hopefully a seed, not a sown crop, you know, that okay. it's not in a bubble. It's not isolation. It's, it's yeah, a, no, it's no, a it doesn't replace. Right. You know, the responsibility lies with the federal government. It was the government that instituted all the laws that kept all this in place and it's the government's responsibility. But each of us, like ordinary people and descendants of enslavers um, can really work to help address the problem. Yeah, I agree. That's excellent. All right, we are gonna take a short break. Then we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about a few more things. And then we're gonna talk about one of the craziest coincidences I've ever heard of. And it's, I'm sure the story you uh, have told a million times, but you're gonna have to give me at least a short version of it. Um, cause again, and again, I think that, that people just don't know stories like this. So, um, and you've told a thousand times, but it was the first time I heard it. So <laughs> you're going to share, we'll share with the audience. We will be right back with historian, civil rights activist, little Afro puff back in the day, Pam Smith. And we are back today. My guest, Pam Smith, she worked with Jesse Jackson and Barack Obama. 
she also lived in Africa for two years. Tell me about that. Wow. So I was working for the, uh, I did a campaign for the president of the Cook County Board um, and um, in Chicago, we won. I went into the government, but then I felt like, you know what? I just always have wanted to go to Africa and he was getting ready to run for governor. So it was not a great time for his press secretary to be leaving. Right. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I really felt like it was something that I wanted to do. So I applied to like a hundred places. I was, um, this was in 90, you know, in the early nineties. Okay, yeah. Um, and so I got accepted for a teaching position in Burundi. Oh, wow. And only two places, I applied to a ton of places, only two offered me a job because I'm not a certified teacher. My, my career profession is communicate was then communications. Yeah. But, you know, if if it's a developing country and they don't have access to, then they'll go with the next best thing was this college degree and interviews and that sort of thing. So I was in Burundi for a year and it was it was quite shocking, actually. I mean, it was because here the paradigm is black, white. And so there the Hutu and the Tutsis were at it. And I couldn't understand what is everybody's black. Like, why are we doing this? Everybody's black, you know. (laughs) Um, but, you know, during the colonial era, those divisions were sown. And so now there's these um, divisions. And one night I thought I was hearing like it. It sounded like tanks, really. But I just thought, OK, it must be thunder or whatever. So in the morning, I woke up to go to school to teach. And um, my housemate said, we're not going anywhere. There was a coup last night and the president, the first democratically elected president was killed. And there was an out the outbreak of civil war. So I found myself in this, you know, so you couldn't travel between um, neighborhoods. They were called communes. You couldn't you they on the radio. They said, you know, if everybody remains calm and does exactly what we say. No one will get hurt. You know, you can't have more than two people talking on the street. You can't have like all these things. It was That's quite bananas. something. It was, it was, it was really quite something. And Americans were not targeted, but you know, I worked at um, the international school and um, there were Africans who worked there. So the people that we knew and cared about, um, you know, were in this, um, Laundry and yeah, it, it was really something. And so we ev- were eventually evacuated because of that. And so I decided I didn't want to come home. So I went and cl- hiked up Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. What? Uh, <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> I wasn't ready to come home. That is amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. That's, and that's I encourage anyone listening, if you ever have a chance to climb you know, there's rock climbing it where, you know, you have to be, you know, professional right, right. You know, rock climber, but you can hike it and it's three days up and two days down. It's wow. rigorous. Um, but a lot of people do it and I encourage people to do it. Wow. That's, I'm going to put that on my bucket list. Yeah. I'm going to go climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Man, that just sounds so freaking cool to say. It's so freaking cool. And I think I would have summoned it. After the first 20 minutes, because I did not train for it or anything that you're supposed to do. (laughs) And (laughs) so after the first 20 minutes and it started going up instantly, you know, I said to you have to climb with a guide. 
um, who are the real heroes. You know, like you hear about people summiting, yeah. but imagine they have to summit every single time. Right. It's their livelihood. Right. And I think wow. we don't we don't really appreciate it in the way that we should. But um, he said, you know, after 20 minutes, I said, oh, no, we have to go back. I made a terrible mistake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did. And he said, no, no, if you go poly poly, which is slowly, slowly in Swahili, uh-huh. he said, you'll make it. He said, very fit people try to run up this mountain and <laughs> the mountain wins every time because you have to acclimate at every yeah. level. And if people just try to run up, you, right. you know, I got altitude sickness near the end. So I had to come down worst sickness of my life, but it was great experience. That's because you ran so far, right? Oh, hardly. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have time. to. Your body didn't have time to acclimate. You were. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, <laughs> uh, no, I didn't have that to worry about. But thank God there was a doctor on the mountain because he had altitude sickness. So he the had doctor to did? stop. Yes, the doctor wow. did. And so he I was able to get some care because there was a doctor who was also sick. So Wow. And the only the only um cure is descent. You have to the only thing that makes it better is to come down. No medicine, no medicine. So while you're sick, you have to somehow Keep trudge going, right? down. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. That's cool. So <laughs> now was that before or after you were in a monastery? <laughs> that was way before I was in the monastery. So I was just uh, spent three years at a place called Richmond Hill. The Sisters of the Visitation of Monte Maria were there for 120 years. In, wow. um, and they left to be more, they were cloistered, which meant they never went out. Um, we're surrounded by a wall, like a four block um, wall. So it operates as a retreat center with a social justice mission. And while I was there, there was this quote unquote tool shed in the garden, very big, beautiful garden. Um, and it just seemed like something was just not right about that being a tool shed. I don't know if it's just my ancestor kind of um, sensibility. Were there many black women there? Or, um, there was no, there was only one black nun at the time that it was an operating convent. Mm-hmm. And um but the building where enslaved people once lived on the property was there being used as a tool shed. And so um, I just thought that 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 we had to make a clear determination. They said, well, we don't know if it goes back to the enslavement era or not. And that right. seemed like something that we really should know definitively. Yeah. So we hired a wonderful African-American historic preservation architect, Joby Hill. If anybody's interested, she has savingslavehouses.org. And Joby came. Savingslavehouses.org. Mm-hmm. And Joby um, came out and assessed it to be an enslaved dwelling. So we're now rehabilitating it to be a space of to honor the ancestors, to do the work of repair and healing. Nice. I think I think that everything we do and this is my like, I'm sure you don't follow the podcast. Hopefully you will after you've been on it and you kind of listen. I will. Um, that's kind of my journey lately. And some of my guests have, have just mainly talked about some of the Eastern philosophies of everything has to come from love. Everything is connected. Everything is, you know, and, and people call God or Allah or the universe or Buddha or, you know, whatever a, a supreme figure being type thing is. And it's again, from this philosophy, it's all the same. It's all the same power. It's all the same stuff. And getting in touch with that 
and and allowing yourself to proceed with love and yeah. to heal with love and to forgive, mm-hmm. including forgiving yourself, you know, forgiving, yeah. you know, forgiving, forgiving people and forgiving yourself. And and that's that's kind of my my journey of the last mm, six or eight months. I've kind of been just more in tune, more mindful about it. Wow. You know? that's I, good. So do you have a practice? Like, do you meditate? Or- I meditate and I take some yoga and okay. um, and and, and I and I talk. You know, I talk with people a lot and just when you, when you, when you talk about your, your feelings and your fears and your imposter syndrome and your, you know, all these things and all the, all the shortcomings and they sometimes are are helpful to remind you, well, what about, you know, you're a good father. You have three great kids who are, you know, this, you're a good husband, you're a good, you know, this things. And, and you start, and we, and we forget that and we don't give ourselves the credit for doing things every day. And I, I call it the driving yeah. example, a thousand cars pass you every day and nothing, no incident. One person cuts you off and uh-huh. your reaction is people can't drive. People right. suck. Live, you know, <laughs> that's true. And yeah. we all do it. Yeah. Oh. And it's the same with like, like we, we get up every day and we eat or we go to work or we do all these things every day and that's good and that's healthy. And it's, and mm-hmm. if you're mindful about it, it's cleansing, but, mm-hmm. yeah. but then if we get sick or if we call in sick or, if, or if something happens, we beat ourselves up and we expect yeah. the rest of the people to beat us up too. So that's right. been, that's been my journey. You're, you're talking about love from the monastery kind of touched me and I don't, I don't mean to yeah. hijack your podcast. No, um, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm so, I'm so glad you talked about that. And while we're on love, we might talk about Anne and Cynthia's wedding. Yes, we will in a minute. Absolutely. Okay. You, okay. You go. Yeah. You're, that's you <laughs> during COVID, you know, much of the time I was there was during COVID. Oh, wow. Oh, so this and is super recent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just ended it five months ago. Um, so I just came from Richmond five months ago. Wow. So, um, yeah, we pray a lot. You know, it's mm. three. We had prayers three times a day, 7 a.m., noon and six. And, was and they were formal time? prayers. No, formal prayers in the chapel. And we rotated leading prayers. Oh, OK. And when you lead prayers, it's not like just saying a singular prayer. It's like there's a whole, and we prayed for the healing of Metropolitan Richmond. So we prayed for, we know that Richmond is the seat of the Confederacy. We know all the disparities and racial problems that still exist. So we prayed for the healing um, of that. So that was that and cleaning a lot of bathrooms (laughs) because we're a retreat center. So we have all these people coming, you know, how you go on a retreat to plan, you're with a group. So all kinds of groups came from all over because it's such a beautiful place and people come to do their planning and they stay overnight. And we had to do all the domestic chores in addition to the prayers. And in addition to our assignments, my assignment was I ran a tutoring and mentoring program in Richmond Public Schools called the MICA Initiative. So everybody had uh M-I-C-A-H. After Micah six eight, yes, um, and so um, we all had our assignments. So we were quite busy bees, <laughs> very much wow. so. Um, if anyone's interested in living in residency at Richmond Hill to have an experience like this, so we each had our own living unit, and um, um, and so it's time for you to you know. Yeah, what did what did that look like a living unit? Was it a, a uh, we didn't have kitchens in our units because we had communal kitchen. Okay. Um, but we each had a bedroom, sitting room is what they called it. I was right. like, 
what is that? I mean, cable, we always call it TV. living room. <laughs> living room, no TV, but we streamed. We streamed. We all oh, watched. Okay. Yeah, yeah. If we had time, we would right, definitely right. catch an occasional um, movie. But it, it was just a, a little bit of um, space to do something. You were talking about introspection and to, you know, go inside that it was a time for that, as well as activism and thinking about what the city of Richmond needed. Fantastic. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and, and again, just good. You're, you're a good person. You know, I mean, if, if you don't say that to yourself enough, hear it from me, the things you do are good. The things you stand for are good. Everything you're doing is good. And that, that should give you some solace in those times of self-doubting. Yes. (laughs) Uh, If you have. Well, thank you for saying that, Tony, because you know, we don't do that. No, we don't. So when did you get into genealogy? Oh boy. Um, well, in terms of act- actively doing it in the early 90s, okay. um, I had always been interested. It was part of that whole wanting to go back to Africa. Like, who are my people? Yeah. Yeah. Roots. You wanted to be Alex Haley. Yes, Roots. You Alex wanted- Haley. That's what got me starting yeah. to ask people questions. How about you? Did you start asking questions? Oh, yeah. Too? Oh, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> then how did you meet Anne? So Anne, so... Um, my grandmother said that we were from Missouri and that her grandfather's name was Baltimore. And I just thought, wow, like the city, that was unusual. So I did some research in Chicago, but then I took this research trip to Missouri. I like to go where it actually happened. Mm -hmm. And I encourage people every chance I get. So sorry if I'm doing it now, (laughs) encouraging people, look at your family history and especially go back and walk the land where they were walk the land. Um, And so I went to Missouri and I went to the courthouse and I asked if they had any records. And she said, no, a lot of stuff had burned in the fire, but, um, but there was a black colored marriages book. And so she found, um, actually that was over the phone. And then I looked at the book when I got there. Um, And so I said, any other suggestions that you have for me, you know, trying to find enslaved, my enslaved ancestors, now, how did and you know? How did you know at this point they were enslaved? Was it just family stories, or did my grandmother did say he had been Baltimore had been a slave? She okay. knew that. Okay. Yeah, she didn't know any details, and um, so the when I asked, are there other resources? The woman at the courthouse said, "Well, you might call Aunt Professor Ann Neal. Um, her she lives in California." But her family is from here, too, and she has done a lot of research in the area. And so maybe she can give you some, you know, tips or some yeah. leads or something. So I called her and um, and she was very nice. And we became genealogy buddies, nice. you know, over over the phone. And then it was two years later on another research trip where I learned that it was Anne's family that had owned mine. Wow. Wow. So it's so, like, I mean, uh, wow, wow. Because we were friends, like never. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Did I think this whole journey that I was on was going to lead me to this new friend? You know, two year old. You know, uh, we had been friends by that time for two years. That's amazing. Um, to be to be specific, I should say it. A member of her family owned a. Owned, I always have to do in quotes because right, right, right. I don't believe that we can right. own, spiritually own another human being. Right. But in fact, it was legal, as you know. Right, right. So um, 
So anyway, when I was in Missouri and Anne had given me, oh, you might want to talk to this person, this person, because she had been doing research. And um, and so I called her from there and I didn't even say hello or anything. I just said, it was your family. Oh, well, okay. Let me indulge me. Please. So you see, you, you, I see the research that she kind of steered you towards had this list of names and then one of the names matched up, I assume. No, she didn't steer me toward. And it's kind of a sore spot for me. Actually, I, I, I thought it um, might be, and I'm trying to be delicate <laughs> right now. Yes. It, it's, it's a sore spot on so many levels. And, and I'm, I'm feeling it now, even 30 years later, like, you yeah. know, it'll get, I'll get a little, um, because I feel so many things. One, there were so many things that I discovered through my research. And when we would have interviews and newspaper articles would come out, it would say, and then Ann Neal found out that such and such, like the black person couldn't have found that out. Yeah. You know, so yeah. that's one thing. Um, the other thing is for me, it's kind of a sacred journey. And so there was a point when Ann and I, I we couldn't even really talk to each other. And so she was asking me what I was writing and I had written this poem because that's how I communicate. That's how I have to process. Thank you. That's how I have to process things. And I was at her house. We were working on a presentation and I was staying in this other kind of out um, um, little cabin thing that she had. Very cute. And um, so she said, what are you working on? And I said, oh, just something. And well, she really pressed me. So I had to say, you know, it, and I had to show it to her and it wasn't flattering, you know, like it wasn't nice. Now, so, at this point, did you know it was her family? Did you know it was her people? Yes. Okay. Yes. This okay. is after that. And so um, um, because in between all this, we have all these speaking engagements. So what happened is that Anne had a colleague at the University of Idaho. And she knew about this connect that we had found this connection. And she said, Hey, can you and Anne come and speak about this? And that was our very first speaking engagement. And huh. Anne and I said, sure, but what would, we, what would we talk about? Like, we didn't even know what to talk about. Right. And yeah. she said, well, just kind of tell the story. Well, they brought us in the backstage. It was an auditorium. And we just thought, you know how you go to small group discussion kinds of things. We we had no idea. I mean, we looked at the audience and there were like 500 people. <laughs> and and it just shows how much people want an entree into talking about these yes. issues. Yes, and well, so that's many me. Times, I'll be completely blunt, blunt. That's me. I want an entree to have this discussion. Really, an entree? Yeah. Yes, no, exactly. An Am I saying that right? Probably not. Entree, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Go, yeah. go on. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, not at all. Um, I like the introduction. I like the interruption. Okay. I, <laughs> yeah. One thing I learned at Richmond Hill, you know how they say, oh, I couldn't get anything done because I had so many interruptions. At Richmond Hill, they say the the interruptions are the ministry. Oh, all right. Like yeah. that is the ministry. So yeah. the interruptions are the podcast. Right. Okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I guess. Um, so anyway, we did this presentation and then there was a wire service report, you know, how the news wire service right. in the old days worked. So then a, the story appears in local newspapers everywhere. So we get all these invitations to come and speak on college campuses and things. And so we were um, in Missouri and Anne wanted to work on my side of the family, you know, because she's Anne's very interested 
And she's a sociologist. So long before she met me, she was very interested in the racial history of this country. And she feels very strongly about it. And she wants to do something about it. And she's very... But I said to her, get out of my family. You know, I did not want her... Now, I don't feel exactly that way today. Right. You know, but at the time, that's how I felt. Because it's a sacred journey. And I want my ancestors to know that I cared enough to go looking for them. Right. And to do the work. And to sit in archives and go through records and, you know, do Are you saying this just to make me feel bad because I let my sister do the work? (laughs) Because what? I let my sister do the work. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah, you got to get in there. Help her. Yeah. Um, There's usually one in every family, though, who kind of carries the ball. Yeah. Well, and so... I, I can completely understand the the, the semi resentment. I mean, I, I mean, I know we're trying to be delicate, and I know that you and Anne are friends, and we met through her and through at the way yeah. and everything. So I, I don't want this to sound bickering or partisan, but I, I do want to examine some of it. So you were frustrated that she was taking your journey, or leading your journey, or even participating yeah. on your journey, yeah. and you really wanted to just take. Yeah, I just wanted to take the journey. Yeah, I just wanted to take. I didn't mind. Um, you know, I thought it was um, uh, mildly important to do it together, kind of. Okay. I mean, at one point, I vacillated. At one point, I thought, okay, why am I commiserating with the enemy? Now, of course, Anne is not right. the enemy, right. but that's how I felt. Right. I'm like, I could be doing this work with other Black people, which right. I was, you know, Black right. genealogists and everything I'm spending all this time in these speaking engagements, but there was a part of me, you know, I do consider myself kind of a bridge person in terms of racial, you know, dynamics. Not everybody has that in their life, nor should they. And I try to say to white people, because they're like, oh, you know, this black person said something mean to me, or the black person said, don't talk to them about this or, or something. And I said, you have to find your people. Black people are exhausted. It has been centuries, not decades. And, you know, it's and it's the, not up to people to, yeah. Black people are not a monolith. Right. You know, everybody no. doesn't and everybody's right. yes, Everybody's different. Everybody right. has their. So I said, so if you want to talk about racial um, dynamics with, uh, with African-Americans, go to an organization like Coming to the Table, because that's what that organization does. Yeah. So... Um, so anyway, so there was that part of me that felt like, okay, there, I know that people are interested in this, you know, dynamic. So I did think it was important, but it was a constant, um, tussle and kind of the, um, a moment for us was, so we got invited to speak on Oprah and the, the, we declined it wow. because it was, um, uh, they wanted Anne to apologize for slavery on the air. See, and that's and, a, oh, that's hard. And it was just we both just thought that that's, is just like not and and I didn't even feel like an apology would would matter to you know, I just felt like I felt so strongly about the whole thing an apology just seemed really superficial kind of, so, you know. So thing. when you when you found out when you connected the dots, was your initial response sadness? Oh my god, my friend blah, blah, blah. Was it anger? Like, how dare you? Was it everything? I mean, what, what, what yeah. was the initial flood? And I, I'm so 
I have my friend Michelle because I think the whole thing was such an emotional blur for me that I for but I my friend Michelle who lives in San Diego. Oh, don't um, who was at the wedding? Um, oh. <laughs> Michelle. Oh yes, yes, we met. You met her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Michelle said, "Oh my God, you called me as soon as you could." You know, she said, "You called me that day, and you said I'm never going to speak to her again." Right. <laughs> right. And I don't remember that. I don't mean to laugh, Michelle but of course said. that that seems. I'm glad that 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 was the perceived reaction because yeah. I would think that's how my reaction would be. Right. We joke exactly. my whole life. My dad's black, mom's white. And our whole life, we joked that my mom owned my dad's, you know, my mom's family owned my dad's family. Oh, now, wow. There's no evidence remotely even close to it. There's no evidence that my mom's family owned slaves, <laughs> you know, there's no, but it was just a running joke in our family. Mm-hmm. And the idea that, that these wheels are, these dots were connected, I can't imagine. I mean, I can't imagine finding out, but I can't, like we have, my, we've done some genealogy and found slaves and things like that, but nobody... Yeah like on the other side, so to speak, you know, no, yeah. no tangible face to yes. identify and, yeah. and identify with slavery. And then you said, again, I'm, I'm all over the place and it's okay. Cause it's my show. Um, yeah. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> when you, when you were, when you were writing the story and doing something, you said some of it was very unflattering for her family. Yeah. How did, yeah. how did she react? Did she, she, she reacted. Um, I thought you might ask me this and I, I pulled out something that, so that poem that I mentioned to you. Yes. Um, the only thing is I, I need to be able to tell you what Anne's um, side was. But it starts, I am not amused by pain. I want to ball you up like a messed up piece of paper and throw you out of my life. Can you believe that? And can you be that? A piece of garbage like your ancestors might have treated mine. You know, I mean, it's Holy just cow. like, it's just like crazy. But then I get to this part where I'm saying, but we're friends. Like we had that genealogy friendship. And then I said, but dear God, please don't make me suffer a friendship. Why must any part of this feel good? Wow. You know, because I was, and then reconcile back in my ancestors' voices from the past. So that idea that your ancestors want progress, our ancestors want us to get beyond all this. Reconcile back in my ancestors' voices from the past. Untangle, advance, how goes the soul in its dignified plan? Holy crap, whatever you're uh-huh. reading, send that to me. And that, yeah, please. But I, I have cause... to be able to tell you this part that Anne said. Um, she said, I think I know it by heart. She said, We're trying to crack the bone hard core of an obscene, abominable past, and it's worse than surgery. The only anesthetic is denial, which totally foils the operation. I didn't know I knew people who could talk like that. You guys are amazingly <laughs> articulate. That, Both of you are so wonderful. Isn't that? I mean, her poem, that poem is called Hardcore that she wrote. So we ended up writing. That's just two of the, it goes back and forth, back right. and forth because we couldn't talk. And so after that, then when we, people invited us to speak, we would just say, well, here, let's just do the poems and we, you can see like what it, what it was, you know, what yeah. it was like. So then, um, okay, don't forget, brought us, send me that. I don't want you to I will send it over. to you. Okay, yes. I just want to make yes. sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, um, and then we, then a couple of years later, Oprah's show called again. And this time they, uh, they said it's for a show called Unlikely Friendships. And we thought, now that's good. You know, yeah. it is an unlikely friendship. Yes. So we did go on the show. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because 
it's super cool. People think I kind of put, well, it, it was a cool experience, <laughs> yeah. you know, sitting next to Oprah with right. the diamond earrings. Right. And the, you know, <laughs> um, it was quite, it, when, when I, we weren't nervous, but then we were standing at the door and it, for me, it wasn't until they said, okay, Pam, you'll take the seat closest to Oprah. And I went, <laughs> Winfrey? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but I'm just saying right. it like all hit me. But um, people say that I kind of threw Anne under the bus Ooh. on national TV. And, you know, that that hurt me um, in a way because I didn't want people to think I didn't want black people watching to think that all of this is wrapped up in a pretty red bow. Yeah. And Anne and I are friends and you can be friends, too, with the people who were in, you know. And so I made I I, I made an extra emphasis on talking about the difficulty mm -hmm. and how I felt, how, you know, the emotional yeah. kind of, yeah. To me, I mean, I was going to say to me, that's the whole story, but it's not the whole story, but it is a whole chapter, you know, of the story. And, and obviously as we'll, we'll touch a little bit more on later, you were at her wedding, you yes. know, recently and, and you guys are still in touch. So it, it's a hopeful that the last chapter is hope that there's, yes. you know, that there's reconciliation possible. But I, I, you know, I'm not the first person to say this. You can't have healing without pain. You can't have, yeah. you know, there's no shortcut through the journey and the, and the healing process. If you break a bone, it takes a while to heal. If you, if you right. get stitches, it takes a while to heal and it hurts. Mm -hmm. And, and it, and that's okay. It's okay mm -hmm. to go through the pain. And I applaud you guys for going through the pain. And I think when someone is faced like, we haven't found any slave ownership in my mom's side. We have found slavery on my dad's side. Okay. And and I'm and I'm glad I don't know how I would react. I don't know if I would say because I, I, I look at me today, and I'm sure Anne and many other people look at themselves today and they are trying to be part of the solution. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they're hit in the face with you're where you are because of this yeah you know because of the free labor because yes. of, you know yes. Yes. ownership and yeah. and that has to hurt to hear you know that has mm -hmm. to hurt to hear and then yeah um wow so yeah i think it strikes people in different ways i know i went and brought this news to a white person who lived in a very big as i was driving to the house on the winding roads and the white house on the top of the hill I was just thinking about, you know, all of the everything that enabled them to have that kind of wealth. And when I talked to him and I presented him with, here are some people who were enslaved by your family. Um, and I wasn't looking for guilt because I think guilt is very paralyzing. Yeah. But I think it's, you know, looking for some kind of empathy with what, you know, other people had to go through. But he said, um, he said, well, you know, I'm very proud of my family. Yeah. I was just like, oh. You know what? And, and even that, okay, this is hard. These words are hard to come out of my mouth, but bear with me. Even that is okay. You know, you can love your drunk uncle mm -hmm. and not love his alcoholism and not yeah, love when he right. does certain things. I mean, you can exactly. love things. Right. And acknowledge that they're flawed and acknowledge yes. that things are happening. And, yes. I, and I don't I think people get very defensive in terms of, you know, well, I, I love my family. I'm proud of my family. Mm -hmm. And then because then 
your instinct, at least mine would be, you're proud that you own slaves. Yeah, and right. You human can't beings. be proud, of, proud of that. Actions, you know, yes, and then they say, we well, are. no, but, you know, and then, and, but then it's not right. a, it's not a healing. It's not a conversation. Right. It's a chess match. Who's going to win? Who's going to make the other person look the worst? Who's going to yeah. make the other person feel bad? So that's yeah. really, I, I like how you said that. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because he sent me an email maybe after. four days after that. And, um, and it said something like, you know, I appreciate the conversation. And um, he said, you know, like, I think this is the kind of conversation that every person in America should be having. So it's almost like he had a, like a delayed reaction because it had to process. Right. And I don't, I don't, I don't obviously don't know him or anything about him, but I think sometimes your first reaction is to put up your dukes and defend Mm -hmm. yourself. And then afterwards you can digest it a little slowly and think about when you're, when your adrenaline's not flowing, your fight or flight's not kicked in. Mm And you and you breathe and you think, uh-huh. you go, wow, I, I should have said this or I could have said yeah. that. And mm-hmm. then you reach out. And say, so that's again, that's another hopeful story. And my my yeah. whole theme and my whole life is hope. My whole uh-huh. thing is is how things can get better. And, yeah. you know, and, and trying to I have a, a very, 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 very militant <laughs> black friend. <laughs> and uh-huh. he often says things like nothing's changed. There's still police are still killing our people and this and that. And I'm like, yes, there's still bad things happening. But also, 20 years ago, nobody was getting a settlement from the government by, you know, a falsely killed or, you know, and no police officers were getting fired. No police officers were going to jail. There was Mm -hmm. no accountability. Mm -hmm. So you you have to acknowledge that Mm -hmm. systematically it's improving. (laughs) Is it there? No. And it's okay to say it's improving, but it's not there. Mm -hmm. You know, and I and Mm -hmm. and but then you also still but that person still has to say the white person the other side of this conversation still so say yes you're right but there's a long way to go or yes this is still happening or yes this is a tragedy mm-hmm. and and right. you have to have the acknowledgement of the progress with the acknowledgement of the horrific past mm-hmm. to try and heal and i'm, I'm off exactly. my exactly my dad's no, no, no. I, 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 I think that's really important it is so horrible that it's continuing but i'm glad those systemic changes are taking. and it took something horrible a lot of that is post george floyd yep. so it took that um and again it's awful to say and i acknowledge the awfulness of what's about to come out of my mouth but that might have been a great thing for america that that poor man was martyred because it made us talk and it made enough people mad enough to shout over the again it's a tragedy it's a martyr it's horrible let me put that in a box i don't in any way want to make that sound other than Mm -hmm. but it was a wake-up call it was an alarm Mm -hmm. it was a conversation starter Mm -hmm. and i and i think that enough people started seeing and listening and shouting and even for the first time because whenever you see these the the police officers are typically you don't know what it's like to be a police officer you've never been in this position and even with rodney king people were defending the police officers, you know, and, and with this, I, I had a very consensus view of the police officers that I know who said, that's ridiculous. That should not have happened. That was terrible, mm-hmm. which again is another step. It gives me a little bit of hope. So mm-hmm. yeah, of course, everything gives me hope. I'm a hopeless. Yeah. <laughs> we have to keep hoping as we work. Yeah. We have, we have to, to uh, keep, keep hope alive and, and keep acting. Keep yeah. hope alive. Keep hope alive. <laughs> Another one Jesse of Jackson. Favorite. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite Jesse quotes. <laughs> Keep hope alive. Yeah. All right. Wow. Uh, so um, how long do you think it, I mean, 
obviously you're at the wedding and obviously you guys are our friends and everything. Mm-hmm. Is there still any lingering tension? Is there still any lingering? I don't think so because I think, um, I mean, I think, what do I think? I, um, I it's been, you know, it's like a change of 30 years is a long time. That discovery was 30 years ago. Wow. So what I think changes, you know, over time. But um, what I can say is that Anne is a dear friend of mine. I cannot imagine my life without her. And I'm not saying that just to be saying it. I'm saying we have, you know, for years, like, talked about current events on the phone and talked about politics and talked about books. She's just been a huge um, influence. You know, Anne is 20 years older than me. So she's been that kind of um, uh, influence on my life. And and we just laugh at, you know, we're we're girlfriends in a way, you know, it's like, so there's that whole history, but then there was also that side of it. And I think that that's the side that got us through all that, um, that and our commitment, because we said we could have, like when we made the discovery, there weren't very many of these connections. Now there are a lot of them because of coming to the table and lots of people are making these connections. But um, we, um, we both, by me being a communications professional, by her being um, a professor, by my interest in history, she was a sociologist. I mean, we had, we had what we felt like we needed to try to make meaning of this and take it out in the world to help people start conversations. Nice. That's what we were really trying to do. And so I feel like, you know, we tried to do a book because everywhere we went, people were like, when's the book coming out? We caught it Entangled Lives. That was the name of it. Um, And so everybody was like, when's this? So that didn't work. And then we thought people suggested documentary that didn't work. And so I just think our mission for that 25 years or so when we were doing it intensively was to do what we did to try to help, you know, spark conversations where we could. So I was thrilled to be at her wedding. You know, to know that, you know, in your 80s, you can find love like her and your aunt. (laughs) Fabulous. And I now love Cynthia, too. And and Cynthia is also a professor. So that was a good uh, match for them. So, yeah, we we continue to know all the work that needs to be done in the country and try to do our part. And we continue to be friends. I might be wrong, but I'm usually not. Uh I don't think it would have worked if you guys were the same age. I think that different perspectives in your life and different different points. And I think, again, I give older people credit as I get older, <laughs> you know, when yeah, I was young. Right. I, know, yeah. I feel the same way. Yeah. Older people were stupid. They didn't understand. They were never, you right. know. And yeah. now as I get older, I say, and, and I feel very at peace that I can say that I was stupid. I know I was stupid. I know mm-hmm. I said and did dumb things. I know that hopefully most of my life was not laced with malice, mm-hmm. but mischief. And, and yeah. you know, like, I, I don't remember ever trying to hurt someone or trying hurt to embarrass someone, someone or trying yeah. to make anyone right. mad. But I, but I did dumb things, a lot of dumb things. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, sometimes people got hurt and both mm-hmm. physically and emotionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, like I have these conversations with 
both older and younger people. And I think the conversations are easier just coming from a slightly different perspective. And again, I, I could be way mm-hmm. off base. I don't, I don't know how yeah. this thing happened, but oh, that's interesting. I'll have to think about that. Um, yeah. So 30 yeah, years I, ago, yeah. you know, if you guys were the same age and, and y- you were hurt and angry mm-hmm. and pointing out things about her family that would hurt and anger her, mm-hmm being closer i think might have been harder to deal with but uh-huh. that could be that could be it's interesting to think about it worked out the way it worked out which is mm-hmm. great yeah so, you know yeah. that's a good thing yeah. all right we have one more section we're gonna take a quick break and we're gonna ask a few little things about what's going on now give some social media stuff and then visit the electric chair so okay. <laughs> all of that is coming very very shortly i will be right back with my guest pam smith so how about that wedding where we met, I mean the the scenery, the the was a golf course right in the background. In the it, mountains? There was a golf course in the mountains. Yeah, it was spectacular. And then in Anne's vows, she said, "And before these mountains." Yeah, yeah, that was just. And beautiful. they did something that I thought was really cool. That I I have to admit I was annoyed at first, but they sat us with strangers on purpose. You know, we we sat with people we didn't know. <laughs> And it's funny because I look at the tables, I'm thinking, you know, I know maybe a fourth of the people here. I'm not sitting with any of them. What is going on? Right, right, and right. The people How did you feel about that? I'm so glad that you said that because Anne called me and she said, I want to do this thing where I want to meet. And I said, Anne, that is like forcing people want to sit and talk to their friends. Right. And so I was with you. I, you know, you were with Gary. No, yeah. No, I mean. Oh, I'm with me. I get you. Yeah. Philosophically right, on that. Right. Right. But then I, I once people warmed up, you know, then it got how did it get at your table? Great. Fantastic. Uh, it was good. so good. And <laughs> and it was so I don't want to say unexpected, you uh-huh. know, because weddings are typically pretty happy, you know, because everybody there yeah. is invited. Everybody there's eating some drinking, uh-huh. and, you know, and yeah. And they're and they're happy because we're talking about love and we're showing love and we're dancing and and everything. So sitting with these strangers um, who and we had two speeches at our table, two people who spoke and we were talking about, you know, what they were going to say, their toasts and everything. So you were sitting who were you sitting with Gary and no, I was uh, Lorraine Uh and Anne's uh, daughter. Mm -hmm. Oh, she was good too. What's her name? She was good. I know the other one. Yeah. Um, she kind of had braids or yes. something. Yes. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and then but all, they're all strangers, complete strangers. Mm-hmm. And it was just so nice to to able to just be me because the first, our yeah. table was first called for food, which never happens. <laughs> at a wedding for me. So the right. So the first thing I did was I ran to be first. And mm-hmm. I got the food and I walked by <laughs> other tables taunting them saying, wow, right. this is so good. And and I, and, it, and the nice thing was, is I got to go to each table and knew that somebody there would make an excuse for me. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's not an idiot. He's not a jerk. He's just trying to be funny, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because if I went to a table full of strangers and did that, but at least mm-hmm. one person from, you know, people that I know at every table, which right. I, I think that I'm married. So I can't I can't yeah. plan my next one. My brother's getting married mm-hmm. next month. Wow. And, um, oh, wait, is he BJ? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that's your brother because I heard about this wedding coming up and Anne yeah. and Cynthia are going. That's yes. your brother. Yeah. And I met his lovely fiance. Yes. I said, didn't you feel like we got to know? And I don't know, did you come by the house the second day? I had, I flew out to a funeral. Oh, okay. So I didn't get to stay. 
But I, I feel like I got to know most of the people who were there. Even that night, I feel yeah, like I yes. got to know. Were you on the dance floor? I love the line dancing. Was I on the dance floor? <laughs> I miss it. <laughs> was, was I on the dance floor? I was, I was spun on my back. I challenged the two little kids to dance contests. I told you that was the best thing ever. I think that's before... Was that before or after Gary introduced you and talked about the podcast? Probably. Um, I think I was dancing before. Before. Well, right. Because I just remember, I don't think I knew who you were, you okay. know, about the podcast. But I, but I just remember thinking, that is the cutest thing, that man dancing with those little kids. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because one <laughs> of them came over like, like kind of shimmy. And I'm like, don't start anything. Right. You don't want any <laughs> part of this. <laughs> And when she saw that you were going to do anything, she did that. Yeah. They started really. I know. Yes. So well, and they started doing like that old Russian thing where you drop down on your knees. Right. You, like, okay, <laughs> you win. I, I concede. I can't. Right. These these oh sixty God, year old rebuilt knees. That mobile. I mean, that flexible that you could get down on the ground with them and stuff. That yeah, was it, was, it was fun. It was a good time. It and, was fun. And I'm hoping that was a fun wedding. It was. And I'm hoping to see people again, you know, again, you know, yeah. this, this yeah. podcast came from it, which is great. And um, they have, they have some people that live really close to my family in Oregon, which I'm up there, like I said, twice a year, at least okay. to see my mom. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, again, I get it. We're not long lost friends, but it'd be great to have lunch, you know, yes. little, and just, mm -hmm. Hey, right. how's everything going? Good to see catch you. Up. It's so fun to catch up. Teach, teach a little, I just, they're doing little a kids proper respect, time. you know, say, hey, right. you know, <laughs> you, you don't want any of this. All right. All right. <laughs> you didn't get enough at the wedding because I got more. That was funny. <laughs> yeah. They're doing a 35th anniversary of Jackson's 88 camp presidential. Oh. And so I got a call the other day. Oh, man, we're doing the 35th. And so getting reacquainted with some of the people that I haven't talked to in all those years. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. And we're back. Pam was regaling me with Tales of Portland, Oregon. We lived there at the same time. <laughs> we did. Incredible. Um, I'm a little disappointed that she didn't, you know, know of me because I was Mr. Mount Hood Community College, 1985. Uh, I was on a calendar the whole bit. You didn't own the Men of Mr. Mount Hood calendar? No, I did not. I, it sold like nine copies anything. and six of them were from me <laughs> and my mom. <laughs> uh, right, right but uh it was uh it was definitely a good time i love portland portland's a, mm -hmm. portland's I a love great portland. area i did a lot of anti-apartheid work and um yeah, in portland good, good years mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah that was that was the rainbow coalition was oh big. yes 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 yeah the rainbow coalition people can find your latest givings at the judy project right is that where you're still contributing it it is the judy project.info is still up and so, yeah, people can go there and and check it out. What's the what's the mission of that? The mission statement or mission? Process? That is when I was talking to you about the dwelling that we discovered where enslaved people lived at right. Richmond Hill in Richmond, right. Virginia. That's the story. That's the website that tells that story. Okay, and so it it talks about it's named after a woman named Judy who was enslaved on the property. Oh wow! And um. Yeah, it goes through lots of um, people and has information about the archaeology that we've done there and um, our efforts to try and re rehabilitate it. And coming to the table, is that an active? Yeah, comingtothetable.org. Um, yeah. Anybody can go 
there and um, they have an a may they have chapters around the country. So you your listeners can look to see if there's a chapter where they live. If not, they can join the national chapter and there are all kinds of events and things online. And that's for people who are interested in kind of um, racial reckoning, racial reconciliation kinds of work. Too often when we have conversations, uh, especially about race and touchstones, it, it becomes such an, an angry, defensive or attacking conversation and, and not a learning or seeking or, or trying to understand conversation. So places like coming to the table and things like that are places where you can go and you can talk to someone and, and you don't have to worry if you ask a dumb question because they're going to be nice to you and they're going to help you okay. and they're going to say, careful because that's a really dumb question right, like, oh, right you know right, right, right. <laughs> and and exactly. i have to do that with people you know you say you know you probably don't don't want to ask that you know mm-hmm. no it's not a white history month but exactly. it, that sounds like a perfect venue you know to move move discussions forward and to move towards healing and move towards love and everything and yes. just information yeah. and education so that's that's fantastic mm-hmm. that research is out there that's coming to the table.org coming to the table.org yes and then the judy project is about um revitalizing or reusing repurposing mm-hmm. yes um yeah kind of reimagining the space Re-imagine. it will also be it will always be a place where enslaved people live but we're trying to see how we can use that space also to honor people um and to have um conversations and activities that further the repair that's needed in this country. Um, These days I'm working on historic sites. Um, I work on interpretive planning teams. So you know how when you go around and you visit a historic site and then there are people who give you a tour and all of that. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not the tour guide person, but I'm a person on the team um, that is helping these institutions, the historic sites, think about how to interpret this information. So for example, Harry, the Harriet Beecher Stowe house, Harriet Beecher okay. Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, yeah. Oh yeah. Um, where there are lots of differing views about Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yes. So how do we, how do we interpret that? And how do we not just talk about Harriet Beecher Stowe um, and how she was successful in getting a lot of white people to really um, see the evils of enslavement? But how do we talk about all the people that influenced Harriet Beecher Stowe, all the Black people, Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, Eliza Buck, who worked in her kitchen, you know, all the neighbors who had been enslaved, all these people, like, we have to tell those stories, too, and not just the story of Harriet Beecher Stowe. Yeah, and you know what? All the stories don't have happy endings, either. And and we have to acknowledge that. Yes. And... by pointing that out, it doesn't make an attack and it doesn't minimize the the Harriet Tubman's, the Harriet mm-hmm. Beecher Stowe's, the Frederick Douglass's, the people like that who who had great success mm-hmm. for for every one of them. There's probably a hundred. Oh, yeah. Who, who, who yeah, tried that's just and we hear failed. about. Right. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you use the word enslavement, which is yeah. oh, oh, you use that kind of in lieu of it's- slavery. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, the language is changing um, and has changed quite a bit, even in my lifetime. But when we say that, let's say we're talking about someone and we say that they're a slave, that was a condition that was imposed. It was inflicted on people. Right. That is not their inherent right. um, okay. um, status. 
And so we want to put the onus where the onus belongs, that people enslave them. It's not that their status was a slave. And so likewise, the period of slavery is a period where people were enslaved. And so we use enslavement. Okay, good to know. You always try, I always try to keep up and use the right words. You know, we all have to keep up because things yeah. happen all the time, and I'm like, oh, I have to pay attention to that because it's something. But and know. let me let me pay you another compliment. I, when I said slavery more than once, I'm sure in this podcast, you were not quick to correct me, and you just used the terms that you used, and I and I was just listening, mm-hmm. and then notice that and try and learn. And I think that's the approach with everything, especially in this high tension, politically charged world, I don't think it helps anybody to aggressively correct its enslavement. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, I mean, it went from the N word to Negro to, you know, colored to black to African-American to, and if somebody says black, they're not being derogatory. And sometimes that doesn't necessarily mean African-American. But mm-hmm. using right. using the language and, and just being mindful of what you're saying yeah. is so mm-hmm. important. So yeah. I'm not going to say slavery. How do you identify? I'm going to say terms. I'm going to say <laughs> terms of enslavement, <laughs> like the movie Terms of Endearment. Oh, right. I'm say <laughs> yes. Enslavement instead yes. of slavery. Yeah. Um, how right. do you identify, Tony? Pardon me? How do you identify? Like, what do you write on the census? What do you check on the census? Um, let's see. Well, it's funny, funny story. I'll give you a little background if you indulge me. When I was in school, they had essentially black, white, other. Mm -hmm. And my mom didn't want me to check any of those boxes. She says, because you can only pick one. You couldn't, you know, and, and she goes, I don't want you identifying as other. I don't, you're not other. You're normal. You're, Mm -hmm. you know, you're a person. You're a valid person. Mm-hmm. Now, between you and me, half the time I just check black or white, you know, just because I didn't <laughs> want to hear the lecture again from mom. <laughs> but um, I identify as radically mixed. I identify mm-hmm. as um, as as it's hard because being mixed, you get a lot from black people who say you're not black enough or that you try to pass, which is the worst thing you can tell somebody. And judging by that Afro picture, you could tell I wasn't trying to pass. Uh, <laughs> right, and, and there have been more than one occasions where uh, my girlfriend in high school, my long, longest term girlfriend in high school, her dad read an article on my dad and said that, that we couldn't see each other because he didn't know my dad was black. And uh-huh. and, you know, so so you get some of the white and in South Carolina, where, where I went to for a while in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, it was um, very racially divided, very you know, uh, and, and again, being of lighter complexion. And if I was with white people, I would hear things that I know they wouldn't say if they knew that I was half black. And, and so I, I guess I'm again, luck. I'm just lucky. I feel very lucky. I feel very blessed that I, I, I learned at an early age that there are wonderful giving, loving, sharing, compassionate people of all, like I was raised, I feel most comfortable even today around old black people because in our neighborhood that's when i was a kid in my formative years you know those are the people i was probably swatted by other people's parents more than my own because i was a troublemaker but but i knew that they cared you know and i knew that i could go to their house and i knew that when if things got dark or rough or whatever that these parents cared about me and i would listen to their stories and i would hear them laughing and i would pattern my laughter after them and i would pattern 
my spades instead of whist or, you know, whatever after them. And that, you know, and then I moved to an all white neighborhood <laughs> and, and it was different because I wanted from up till 13, 14 years old, I just wanted to be black. I want my skin to be black. I want to be black. I don't want anybody to ever ask me again, what are you? You know, <laughs> I just wanted to be black. And then when I moved there, I was, when I moved, I was very uh, belligerent. I was very chip on my shoulder. I was very, you know, and then I learned that there are, are wonderful white people, which I really didn't have, <laughs> you know, a handle on that. And yeah. that there are jerks of every race, creed, gender, sexuality, whatever, you know, and, but most people aren't, most people are good. Most people love. And that's, that's what I hang my hat on. You know, that's how I get up every morning and, and I identify mm -hmm. as you I identify as that's as, good. As and why do you say radically? Why do you add, why do you say radically? I am because I embrace it. I'm I'm mixed. I don't. I, that's what I am. I'm just mixed. I am. And there was okay. times when I would try and explain. Well, I see that. radically mixed. So you're yeah. you're you're emphasizing the mix as I, yes. opposed to trying to to be right one or the other added. or whatever. Yes. Okay. And okay. and I get. Ask, and I play with it. I'll be honest. I mean, sometimes I'm Greek, sometimes I'm Mexican, sometimes I'm Italian, you know, just <laughs> whatever I feel like being. Right. And again, I'm lucky that I can do that. And it yeah. usually starts a cool conversation or ends a conversation, you know, whatever right. it may be. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's, that's what I mean. I'm, I'm, I'm mixed. I, this, uh -huh. yeah. I can't control it. I can't control yeah. my skin tone. I can't control my yeah. bloodline. I can't control my hairline. Unfortunately, I can't mm -hmm. control a million things. Yeah. So I'm just radically me and I'm mixed and don't, don't try and associate like I'm, I'm straight, but I'm not radically mm -hmm. straight. You know, mm -hmm. I'm just straight. Mm -hmm. and, uh -huh. and if you ask me, I say I'm straight. But if you ask me about my, my racial heritage, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm mixed. That's what I am. And if you want to sit down and try and learn about my history, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Mm -hmm. But I don't want you to put me in a box and say, yeah, You're this, that you try to be this, you try to be that. You know, yeah. one of my go to jokes in high school was. Because people would always ask which half, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm half. They say, well, which half? And I would always say, well, my top half is white so I can get a good job and low interest loans. And my bottom half is black so I can jump and be an athlete and dance. And sometimes, depending on how, you know, feisty I was feeling, I might throw in a couple other black stereotypes. But yeah. it was, you know, I would always say I have the best of both worlds. I have everything I could ever want. So, mm -hmm. Right. That's interesting. Thank you for thank you for that, because I'm always interested in how people think of themselves. Yeah. And one is and I've been asked that a lot in my life, yeah. my, especially with my dad being an activist mm -hmm. and, and all that. It's it was very forefront in my life. It was very, uh -huh. you know, but to stop. We're not talking about me. We're talking about you. <laughs> it's very show. interesting. <laughs> well, I am. Not everybody's Mr. Mount Hood, 1985. There's only one. <laughs> right. So, all right. I know it's getting Is late. Is that the equivalent of like prom queen or something? Oh, my God. No, it's the equivalent of like Miss America. It's <laughs> I had a sash and everything. Oh, my okay. goodness. I'll, have to, I'll send you the articles. I still mm -hmm. have them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, was a, it was a pageant. We had a swimsuit competition. Pageant. Oh yes. my god! Yeah. Well, and wow. it's funny because in the pageant, the there were ten. No, there had to be twelve. Twelve finalists who were all going to be on the calendar. And when the swimsuit competition came along, everybody had their speedo and everything. And I had giant board shorts like down to my knees, mm -hmm. and because 
I wasn't trying to play that sexy pose because I'm just not that guy. I wish I was. Mm-hmm. I wish, you know, yeah. I wish I walked in a room in a Speedo and everybody turned and looked, but they don't, <laughs> you know, yeah, they, right. they, they just, but it, it is what it is. And, and mm-hmm. so it was, a, it was, a, but it was a pageant. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, was it like whatever you said? It was a pageant. It was like Miss America. We were, there was dozens of people watching. <laughs> all right let's stop sidetracking me we're trying to get to your finish okay you have committed a capital crime you are on your way to the electric chair they are granting you one meal your final meal one movie to watch while you eat that meal and then one song to put in your headphones as you go what is your movie the great debaters okay denzel uh-huh Nice. How can you how can you go wrong? I mean, we all love Denzel. He starts the movie standing on the table, remember? Oh yeah. Reciting the oh my God. And then the monologues delivered by the young people who are now in other movies now are I know. It's funny to see them. Yeah. Anybody who hasn't seen that in a while, go back and watch it. And just the content of that movie was just so in that if you ever want to see that finale debate scene yeah oh my god i mean it's just really i think debate is a lost art oh it is i mean it's really something to watch yeah and in debate, fact i'm glad we're talking about it because i'm going to watch it this weekend okay <laughs> yeah again for the 18th time <laughs> the best the best thing about debate to me was that you had to be ready to argue either side Yes, that's you know, the thing. You have to be, you have ready to be to able argue. to argue your opponent better right. than they know their right. own. Right. Yes. And that's 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 just lost because we don't want to understand the other side. We just mm-hmm. want to have our side. We just want to have our mm-hmm. thing. All right. So you are watching riveted, moved, heartfelt to this movie. And here comes the food. What are they serving? Turn back to young if it's good. <laughs> Yeah, good, good. You know, fried rice. If it's good, not good, shrimp egg foo young is good, and mediocre and bad shrimp egg foo young is not. Good. Is not good, right. and it's hard to find good shrimp yeah. egg. Foo we have we have one here. We have a nice one yeah. here. So oh, if do you're in you, San Diego, you if you're in San Diego, I got you. Oh, good. Okay, well that's good because I might yeah be visiting my friend Michelle there. Okay, a little um, a little Chinese food. Uh, what what are you gonna drink? Um, uh, beer. Okay, what well, got got one in particular? The cheapest. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're going out. Take splurge. Okay, okay. Um, I've never been a beer connoisseur. Okay. I just right. both my parents drank beer. So um I usually order light beer. I mean, I like, you know, like Corona and I, you know what I really like is like the summer shandies. Okay. You know, when they come out now with the we're summer somewhere. Now yeah. we're getting somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And dessert? Uh, I usually order coffee for dessert. I okay. love coffee. Uh, a good good coffee in a restaurant beats any dessert. All right, now you're you, you're eating. You're probably wiping a few tears of inspiration off your cheek from the movie. And uh, we're gonna bring in or plug in the headphones. What song are we plugging in? I wish I knew how it feels to be free by Nina Simone. How we. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish oh, nice. I could that nice. song is just, and her singing it, it's, you know, it's not, she's still talking about freedom as aspirational. 
yeah. but it still makes me feel good. Why is that? You know, like it's it's the full bodiedness that yeah, she I gives. Think, yeah, I think when people yeah. can touch you and, and open their heart and soul to you, that's a rare thing. And it has a nice beat and rhythm. It's kind of upbeat, you yeah. know. It's not like a downer. So I would love to do this again. We have a lot of uh, topics we kind of scratch the surface on. Oh, and uh, so if much you're fun, in, we can do this again. And in the meantime, make sure you like and subscribe Tony on the mic. Even if you never listen, just download all the episodes. Tony on the mic. Tony on the mic. You okay. get it at Spotify, Stitcher. I'm going to tell all my friends. Apple, please do. And uh, <laughs> your episode will probably be up Monday night. Okay. Um, And I will, I'll, te I'll text you or email you or give you all the information and then you can spread it like wildfire. Shout out from the mic. Okay. <laughs> I will. So that being said. Yeah. If you, I don't have social, but if you want to put anything, like if anybody has a question or anything about anything I huh? said, you could use my Richmond Hill email address. Okay. Smith at richmondhillva.org. I okay. still is that use the one I'm, Is that the one Hill. I'm using? No, you're using consulting. I just, that's the one I use all the time because it's work stuff I'm working right. on. But um, but for something like this, even though I'm not at Richmond Hill, I still use that email address. Will you shoot me that? Please. Just shoot me an email from that I'll address. Send it to you. And with yeah. your with the stuff I wanted to read, those poems and stuff. Don't oh forget. yeah, I have to ask Anne because Anne, okay, that's fair. Like yeah. this, no, 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 not like that. Oh. I'm sure she'll be fine with you seeing it. But like I'm reading out of a typed thing in my book. Like I don't have it on a on the computer. Oh okay. But Anne probably does because she's very. That's how she is. Okay. Okay, Pam Smith, thank you so much. And I want you to say goodnight to the folks and tune in and hear more uh, from you. Good night, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And um, yeah. Thank Take you. Thank you.